before I read Psalm 59, I want to read a rather unusual background passage and give a little bit of explanation of it. It's from Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 through 24. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die, the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. Now, there are some disasters that hit the church because the church has been committing spiritual adultery. Now, God is a a forgiving God, and uh, when there is repentance, there is full forgiveness. But when the bride of Jesus Christ commits spiritual adultery and continues in it, unrepentant, then her husband is roused to jealousy and his uh, fury is not easily appeased. And there are passages in the prophets that appeal to this specific verse here explaining why it is that God was judging the church. Continuing to read, verse 23, if a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, so you shall put away the evil from among you. And I, I want to emphasize that phrase, because she did not cry out. Women were expected to resist their rapists and not to take things passively. And uh, all men, women, and children are to resist evil with all of the means at their disposal. Now, obviously, there are limits to that. Jesus said, uh, for example, that we're not allowed to raise the sword against the civil magistrate can't resist evil in that way, but there are many other ways, unless another civil magistrate interposes, in which case uh, we have a duty to, right? But um, uh, there are many other ways in which we can resist evil. And applied to the church, this means that the church must cry out to her husband and for his armies when she is being raped, as it were. There is too much passivity when it comes to persecution, and God has given us the imprecatory psalms, and He intends for them to be prayed. He does not want us just ignoring these psalms. We have become a very passive church in the 20th and the 21st century, and I think we need to put that off. We need to begin to return to the blueprints that God has established, and part of those blueprints is for us to cry out to God for vengeance uh, with these psalms. And so that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to preach on Psalm 59. And if you would stand for the reading of His Word at this point. Uh, We're going to sing this psalm immediately after the worship service. It's a new one that you have not heard before, but it's to a tune you know. It's going to be very, very easy, a military tune. And uh, as I read this, I want you to be making this your prayer on behalf of the Bride of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to include the inspired title in the, the reading. To the Chief Musician. Set to, do not destroy. A miktam of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me. Not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me and behold. You therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. 
Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. At evening they return. They growl like a dog and go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, Who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you, O you His strength. For God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. And for the cursing and lying which they speak, consume them in wrath, consume them that they may not be, and let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. And that evening they return. They growl like a dog and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. Amen. Father, we thank You for this Your Word, and I pray that You would quicken that Word to our hearts, that You would take the weakness and the foolishness of preaching, and that You would cause it uh, to be anointed by Your Spirit and through Your ordained means to sanctify this Your people, to encourage their hearts, to instill faith and joy and confidence in You. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned earlier that all over the world there are Christians who are setting aside this day as a really special day, not that we shouldn't be praying every day, we should, but a really special day in which to concentrate and in a united way in prayer for the persecuted church. We're going to have a special prayer meeting this afternoon at 3 o'clock. There's no reason why families can't do it on their own, though. I've given out uh, some handouts, as I mentioned earlier, from Peter Hammond, and we're going to have other prayer guides at, uh, at the prayer meeting. But we need to be in prayer for the persecuted church. We desperately need to be in prayer uh, for, for the, the suffering Christians around the world. There are many of these people who have been uh, holed up for years in bug-infested and rat-infested uh, uh, tanks and, uh, and in holes, they've been tortured in the most barbaric ways. There are gangs of militants who go through villages, burning down every, every uh, house and uh, raping and pillaging people. As uh, the Scripture says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them. That's a pretty strong remembering. <laughs> you know, if you're chained next to somebody, you can't forget the, that person. He says, remembering the prisoners as if chained with them. Those who were mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. And so if you're in the body, if you're a believer, you are being persecuted. Even if you've not personally experienced it, as the bride, you are being persecuted and you need to cry out. And I thought what I'd do is I want to begin by reading a few news clips that will give you a tiny sampling of some of the kinds of things that have been happening to you, the bride, around the world. Now here's a headline from this past Friday. Egyptian security arrests several Christians for praying at home without a license. 
Imprisoned Iranian women refused to deny their faith. Christian believer assaulted in Karnataka State, India. And here are some headlines from a bit earlier. Somalia militants kill Christian woman for refusing to wear a veil. Pakistan police torture Christian brothers. A Christian young woman has been raped in the Indian state of Andhra Pradesh, but police refuse to detain the known suspect while her family faces death threats. Taliban group have threatened to kill Christians and burn their homes in Pakistan's Punjab province if they don't meet their demands. Iranian Christian women may face execution after an Iranian court officially charged them with apostasy. Ethiopian Muslims attack churches. Christian teachers in Malawi threatened with death if home prayer meeting not discontinued. Sharia law in northern Nigeria increases threats and danger to Christians. Waimulang, village in Buru, burned to the ground by militants. 1,400 Christians displaced, several killed. Laskar Jihad to blame. Muslim militants destroy Pantang Walemba village, burning 68 houses, looting one and a half tons of rice that the churches were using to feed Christian refugees from other villages. The militants proceeded to Poso, where they surrounded an enclave of 50,000 Christians. And the article said, Sources in Indonesia said the Jihad army was well-equipped with AK-47s and other military-grade weapons in places better armed than the local police and army units, while the Christians had only hunting rifles, spears, and machetes. Another predominantly Christian village burned to the ground by Muslim armed militia, with 350 homes being totally destroyed, several Christians killed, and thousands displaced by the militants who occupied the territory. Massacre of church members in Pakistan and threats made in other churches. Eight foreigners detained in Saudi Arabia for meeting as a home church. Church attacked in Upper Egypt. Ten-year-old James Jeddah is burned by Muslim soldiers in a bonfire because he refused to recant his Christianity. Amazingly, he escapes, though with massive burns. Rita cries out, Help me, Lord. I do not want to deny you, as she is cut with broken glass by her persecutors. Now, those of you who know about persecution, you know this is just the tip of the iceberg. I could keep on reading probably for an hour on the headlines just from the persecutions from this last year. It is just enormous, hundreds of thousands of people uh, who are being persecuted. And we don't tend to hear headlines like these in the national media. In America, we're insulated from that kind of news, but it's happening all the time. And by the way, if you get all of your news from the national media, CBS, <laughs> you know, and all of these national media things, you need to talk to me. I think you're being brainwashed. That's the propaganda machine of the liberal left, and you need to turn it off and start watching or listening to good news. Occasionally, if you want to see what the left is listening to, fine. But, man, you need to get your news from good sources, at least conservative sources, but preferably from a reformed slant. And if you don't know how to do that, talk to me and I can give you some hinters of where you can get your news. But let's get back into this psalm here. This psalm is a cry of David on behalf of the whole church. Now, it's true that the headline uh, is, gives the historical context of David himself being persecuted by Saul. But just think of this. The only persecutors that David had at this point were Saul and a small band of uh, soldiers around Saul who were Jews. 
And yet I want you to notice in verse 5 that he calls on God to punish all the nations and to not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. This is broader than just him. Verse 8, you shall have all the nations in derision. This is the whole bride crying out to her husband around the world in whatever nation she may find herself in. Now, secondly, the title says that this is written to the chief musician. Now, it's another hint. This is broader than David. Uh, the chief musician was the guy who headed up all of the singing in the temple. Okay? So this house of prayer for all nations, this was to be a representative of the whole bride crying out to God. So it really is broader than just David. Now, let's dig a little bit into... Verse 1, actually verses 1 through 5 is the bride driven to Jesus, her husband and protector. David said, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Now, you'll see in this psalm, first person singular, me and my and I. And you might think, how in the world can I honestly pray this psalm? I've never experienced any bloodthirsty kind of persecution like David is talking about, but we've got to get used to thinking of ourselves as corporately related to the whole bride. We are the bride crying out to God, and where one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. The psalm says, deliver me from my enemies. Now, the church has a lot of friends, but it also has a lot of enemies, and we might wonder, why? Why would the church have enemies? It has done so much good to this world. All you have to do is read a book like D. James Kennedy's in Newcomb's book, um, What If Jesus Had Not Been Born? And you'll realize that the church is engaged in all kinds of charity, setting up orphanages and ministering to widows and the elderly and setting up hospitals, giving finances and uh, being involved in all kinds of things that have transformed and bettered Western civilization. So why would the world hate uh, Christians and bite the hand that is feeding it? Well, I think the, the answer that the Bible gives is we're not just wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against demon forces, and those demon forces are motivating this flesh and blood to persecute uh, the church of Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible says that unbelievers have Satan as their father. And he says, the lusts of your father you will do. You know, if Satan wants them to do something, they don't have a whole lot of choice because they are totally under Satan's jurisdiction. And the demons influence these men and women and these demons hate anything associated with Christianity. David goes on, Defend me from those who rise up against me. Now this psalm, what it's teaching us is to not be silent when the church is being abused. She must cry out, and when her husband hears, he will respond with vengeance. A second thing we learn is that enemies rise up rather suddenly. You know, what was not an enemy yesterday suddenly becomes an enemy today. And sometimes Christians aren't quite sure what to look out for because they suddenly arise against them. Uh, there are people right now in this country who would like to see, and these are prominent people, who would like to see every Christian put into an insane asylum because they say by definition uh, we are nuts, we are crazy. As one psychologist said to my face, he said, anyone who prays to a being that isn't there has a psychosis. There are a lot of people who have strange opinions out there, and uh, it would not at all surprise me if we start facing some severe persecution in the future. The psalmist goes on, Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. Bloodthirsty men. 
You know, the level of persecution and of bloodthirstiness is absolutely astounding. It sickens your stomach when you begin to read the descriptions of what goes on around the world on a regular basis. I know a Baptist pastor in India uh, who has been used by the Lord very powerfully in preaching the gospel. In fact, there's so many Christians who have come to Christ that the fanatical Hindu group called the RSS, uh, they bust into his, busted into his church one time right while he's preaching. They drug him out, beat him in the street, and uh, told him, don't preach anymore. Now, he had to be hospitalized from it, but after he got out of the hospital, he went right back to, to preaching. The second time, he was so savagely beaten that it took him quite a long time to recuperate in, in, in the hospital. But as soon as he gets out, he goes right back to preaching the gospel. And some of his church members are saying, man, is this wise? Ought you to be doing that? And he said, God has called me to preach. I have to be preaching to these people. Well, the third time he was confronted by the RSS uh, Hindus, the radical group, instead of beating him, they grabbed his daughter, doused her with gasoline, set her on fire, and through the flames, his daughter held her head high and she yelled, Dad, don't stop preaching. Preach, preach, preach the gospel. So she died right in front of her dad. They're holding on to him, keeping him from running uh, to her and trying to put the fire out. So here was a man who's in anguish. His daughter is burning, and yet the realization that these people are going to be burning in hell for all of eternity, the Spirit arouses within him a compassion to preach the love, the forgiveness, and the good news of Jesus Christ uh, to these people. And the next time that they beat him, they took a sharp rock and they actually they cut open his stomach and his intestines fell out. They jammed the rock up his rectum so hard that it permanently damaged it and he had to have a permanent colostomy. And yet when he got out of the hospital, he continued to preach love, forgiveness, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to these his persecutors, bearing in his body the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm telling you that story because what I'm wanting to do is motivate you and to say we must cry out for the bride who was being persecuted around the church. When the bride refuses to cry out, Deuteronomy 22 says, in a sense, there is a complicity with the ravisher. We must cry out. There is no option about it. And when these prayers are answered by God, He can answer them in one of two ways. Jesus can bear the curse for that person, in which case He is destroyed as an enemy, He's converted into a friend, or God can take Him out. Either way, the church has peace and we must pay, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. When you see the evilness of men, the inhumanity of man to man, you're not going to have any problem with praying the curses of these prayer, prayers here. It's we, we got a stupid church in the 20th, 21st century that refuses to pray these things. They say it's sub-Christian. You know, we've got to be kind. We've got to be nice. No, God has authorized certain weapons, and when we lay them down, don't be surprised if you get shot to death. No, we the bride are indeed experiencing bloodthirsty attacks from David. Why? Because we're part of the body. We are connected with them. Verse 3 goes on. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me. Now at this point, all David had done to Saul was show him love, faithful service, and loyalty. And yet what was happening is the demon inside of Saul kept moving Saul to try to destroy David. 
he, he just he hated David for some reason. Now, Saul wasn't even sure why he hated David. Uh, there is indications that uh, he, he felt embarrassed about it uh, afterwards. Uh, he even apologized to David a couple of times and vindicated David. But because he had given Satan legal ground, he was powerless against Satan's temptations. Well, the same is true today. The devil hates the church and he is trying to destroy it. In fact, the day before uh, David wrote this, Saul had tried to spear David, pin him to the wall with a spear. Now, David thinks it's a temporary fit of anger, but it's not. When he gets to his room, there are soldiers camped outside waiting for him. Now, look at the title. The title says, To the Chief Musician Set to Do Not Destroy. That's an interesting title for a psalm that's calling for destruction. <laughs> but that's what it says. It's do not destroy. In this all-out war, it's going to be one side or the other side that is destroyed. And as Moses prayed, O Lord God, do not destroy your people or your inheritance. It's either the church is going to be destroyed or Satan's kingdom is going to be destroyed. Don't think all persecution is good. There have been persecutions that have wiped the church off the face of the map in a given country. We ought not to pray for persecution. We pay, pray for peace. That's what 1 Timothy 2, verse 2, uh, commands us to pray. Anyway, the title goes on. It says, A mictom of David when Saul sent men, and they watched the house in order to kill him. Now, here's how the whole story goes in 1 Samuel chapter 19. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an image, laid it in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head, <clears throat> and covered it with clothes. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. Then Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Which, of course, was false, but uh, she didn't have the courage to tell the truth at that point. So what happens is Saul immediately sends out his soldiers to hunt David down and to destroy him. And from that point on, David is on the run, fleeing from Saul. And the question might come, why? What had David done? Back to our psalm. Verse 3 says, For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression or for my sin, O Lord. Now, he's not claiming to be sinless. He's saying, I have not committed anything worthy of my, the husband, uh, you know, persecuting me, nor of Saul persecuting me. It's not for anything that I have done that uh, I'm getting this persecution. Now, sometimes we are persecuted because we're jerks, because, uh, you know, we've been very sinful in our reactions to unbelievers. But David was not like that. He was living like a Christian should live. It was David's righteous life that stood as such a stark contrast to Saul's unrighteous life. It was David's love for Saul that highlighted how ridiculous the hatred that Saul had for David. It was David's integrity that put Paul's lack of integrity to shame. 
It was David's service that was a rebuke to Saul's lording it over others. And so what's going on is more and more Saul is realizing this is a guy who looks like a king should look like, and I'm not anything like that. And he begins to be not only jealous, but he begins to be paranoid of what other people will, uh, will think. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, you need to make sure it's not because of your sin that you're suffering. It's because of the reality of God's power that's working through you. And if it is, then your cry in the next phrase, Awake to help me and behold, is going to be taken seriously by God. Verse 5, You therefore, O Lord God of hosts. And I want you to notice the phrase, God of hosts. David realizes that it's really not how many soldiers Saul has with him that's going to make the ultimate difference. It's whether God is with him. And the God of hosts has a whole host of angelic warriors that are with him. That's what the hosts are. The God of hosts is the God of all of these angelic armies. And you know what? You can look around the world and you can see it's the God of hosts that makes the difference. Uh, you can think of all of that many, many years of conflict in Sudan. Northern armies, well supplied, all kinds of the most recent technology, uh, uh, you know, jets and, and bombs and helicopters. But it really wasn't that that enabled the South to survive. It certainly would have helped if the South had had, a, you know, a few Patriot missiles to shoot down helicopters that are just strafing women and children that are burning crops and things like that. But they realized, finally, that they needed to cry out to their master. Peter Hammond went and he trained the chaplains in the southern army to start praying these imprecatory prayers. As soon as they started doing that, they started noticing huge differences in their battles. Let me just tell you one story. There's this one time they were way outnumbered, way outgunned for sure. In fact, the only weapons that the south even had were weapons that they managed to conquer and steal from the north. Uh, or plunder from the north. It wasn't really stealing. Um, but on this particular occasion, way outgunned, way outclassed in many different ways, and yet as they started shooting, the northern soldiers ran. And when they captured one of these northern soldiers, they asked him, how come you guys ran? And the terrified soldiers said, it was all those fiery beings that were coming at us. These were angels that were, that were coming. And I believe these, the Lord of hosts was on their side because they were willing to take these psalms seriously. And I think the church has got to wake up. And as the bride as a whole begin to pray for God's judgments upon the earth, these are the God-authorized ways of doing so. David says, You therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel... Awake to punish all the nations. Notice that the psalm is not just written for David's situation. The moment it was written, it was included in the canon with the vision. It was going to be used by the bride throughout the world in every nation. Awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. Now, ladies, would you not hope that your husband would have that attitude if you were being raped or being threatened with rape? I would hope you would think, don't have any mercy on this guy. Let him have it. And what husband would not come with his guns blazing to the defense of his wife? That's what he's saying God is doing here. He is coaching the bride to say with David's words, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. Can you say amen to that? That's what God wants us 
to be able to say, and if you cannot, then you are not living out Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22 says the bride must cry out. Did you know that there have been persecutions, I think I mentioned this earlier, that have wiped Christianity off the face of the map in certain segments of, um, of this world? We ought not to pray for persecution. We ought to pray for God's uh, peace and pray uh, against persecutors. And really, for the church to pray for persecution is like a woman to ask to be raped and not to say anything about it. To me, we just ought not to do that. In the parable of the importunate widow, Jesus praised her and then said, Now, shall not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? And will He delay long over them? I tell you that He will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? See, the question is not whether Jesus, the husband, is going to protect his wife. The question is, is the wife going to cry out? Is the wife going to have faith of the importunate women? That's really the question. And then in our psalm comes a sila. It's a notation that means pause. He is saying, I want you to pause. I want you to take some time, the church around the world, to take some time to think about those who are persecuted. Pause to think of the enormity of this problem. Pause to think of the consequences. Pause to think uh, long enough that you can cry out to your protector, the Lord Jesus Christ. There are huge stakes involved. If the church is wiped out in some of these countries, what will happen? May that sila cause us to meditate upon the issues of persecution and to not be passive. Well, now we come to the heart of the psalm, an expression of confidence in God as protector and warrior. We are not supposed to pray these psalms out of despair. Okay? No. We know Jesus will defend His bride when the whole bride is willing to cry out. We cry this in faith because we know of our husband's love. And so this psalm in verses 6 through 10 focuses on God as protector, refuge, and defense. And then parallel to that comes verses 11 through 15, which sees God as avenger, warrior, and and conqueror. So the first half of the psalm, defense. Second half of the psalm, offense, going on the offense. Now, it's not critical that you understand the footnote totally on the bottom, but I thought you'd find it interesting um, that there are various techniques that the Hebrews use to try to make a point. Uh, and some of them are very complex. You look at the book of Hebrews, wow, the, the structure of that book is so intricate, I don't know how any human could do it. Well, it speaks for inspiration, right? God did it. Uh, but this is a very simple technique that he uses. It's called a chiasm, and we actually use it sometimes in English, but very rarely. A chiasm follows an A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A pattern, and so the A's and the B's, the A's are parallel, B's are parallel, etc. So in, in this one here, uh, you're going to see that verses 6 through 7 are parallel to verses 14 through 15, and both of them speak of the howling of the wicked, their frustration. Let's read those. Verses 6 and, six and 7. At evening they return. They growl like a dog and go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? Now look at verses 14 through 15. At evening they return. They growl like a dog and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl 
if they are not satisfied. Now, there are differences because the one's focusing on defense, the other's focusing on offense, but you can clearly see this is a parallel. Well, once you see how the parallels line up, you can see what it is that, that David is trying to portray in the psalm, but you also see what's at the heart of the psalm. What's the main theme of this psalm? In the uh, Hebrew chiasm, the center of that triangle, in this case the two D points, is the heart of the message. Now, in, in English, we usually put the theme right at the beginning of the paragraph, right? Otherwise, you get marked down on your, uh, uh, y the way you write your essays. But uh, in the Hebrew, it does that, but it also, when there's a chiasm, will put the theme right at the center, and so this is not a psalm that's simply a complaint about persecution. The persecution at the beginning and the end of the psalm is telling us why God is a fortress and why He is a warrior. He has to be a fortress. Why? Because we're being attacked by the enemy. But He has to be a warrior because He has ordained that the church is going to have the victory in history. Amen? Okay, so it's not just a fortress. He's also a warrior. He's advancing His kingdom. Both of those need to be held together. In fact, in the second howling section, the enemies are so frustrated because they're just not getting what they, uh, what they want. Uh, it, it's like dogs seeking food, frustrated why they're not satisfied. Well, that's, that was the way it was with Saul. Saul couldn't catch David, and he's frustrated. Saul can't win. He can't find it. He's frustrated. All of these these uh, Israelites, more and more Israelites are going over to David and he's frustrated. Well, that's what happens in countries all over the world. And one of the reasons why there is persecution is because more and more people are going over to Jesus, just like the Jews were going over to David. And they're, they're paranoid. They're, they're, they're trying to maintain control. Everybody's leaving. We need to be more and more tyrannical to maintain control. And so you see this in other countries. You see it with Hindus and the Muslims and the Buddhists. So many people are becoming Christians that they're trying to maintain control by attacking, by persecuting the Christians. It's, a, it's out of frustration. Okay, enough by way of um, introducing the concept of chiasm, and I've given some exposition of it, but look at verse 6. At evening they return. And of course, Saul's soldiers did come at evening to uh, watch for David. And by the way, I think that speaks of these persecutors and Satan himself being creatures of darkness. Now, there are times where persecution, they can be so bold, they do it right in the daylight. But, you know, more frequently they try to snatch people away in the middle of the night. They don't want observation. They don't want people realizing how bad they, 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 they really are. They growl like a dog and go all around the city. Now, this is an incredible picture of the wicked of persecutors here. Uh, you know, they're like these eastern dogs who are always scavenging for food, and when they can't be satisfied, they turn on each other. They're always growling. You know, they're at each other's throats. Now, we have a hard time understanding this imagery because we live in Omaha, where, you know, dogs are licensed and they're well-groomed and treated like pets, and, and you know, they're... They're not like the eastern dogs. Let me tell you something. They didn't like dogs too well back in the Middle East there because the dogs were much like the dogs we had when we were growing up in Ethiopia. You didn't walk anywhere without a club, you know, to be able to whack a dog over the head if it came and attacked you because they really were vicious. I remember being sick to my stomach as a kid one time watching a pack of dogs tearing at a drunk man on the street until people chased them away. They're trying to eat this guy alive. Of course, he was passed out. He didn't know what was happening. 
But the Easterners, they didn't like dogs. And so when Jesus, or when this psalm is using this imagery of dogs, it's not very complimentary. Don't think of your pets, right? <laughs> think of the, the worst Eastern dogs and you've got it. Okay, going on. Indeed, they belch with their mouth. Now, they may see their, their bragging and their boasting as something smart. God says, hey, that's no better than a dog belch. Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? They thought they could get away with it. You know, Sudan, Sudan has thought that they could get away with their arrogance. China, because of the enormous economic clout that it has, thinks nobody's going to hold them accountable for all of the abuses of liberties that they, that, 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 that they take. Um, North Korea has been cocky, absolutely cocky, and who cares what God and the rest of the world thinks kind of an attitude. Saudi Arabia, they belch out acidic hatred against Christians. They kill them. They beat them. And yet they think, who cares? Nobody's even going to know. You know, they're wrong. We do care, and we are going to do something about it. Amen? We are going to lift up these nuclear weapons of these psalms, and we're going to begin to use them against these nations. We're going to take the rod of iron that Jesus promised to share with those who are overcomers in Revelation 2. In fact, I want to read that for you. It says, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And to prove it, he quotes Psalm 2. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. So he says, this is the kind of power I'm going to give to overcomers within the church. He, 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 he's in effect saying, yeah, I know that Psalm 2 was addressed to the Son. The Son is the one who receives that rod of iron. But anybody in the church that is an overcomer, I'm going to let him wield that rod of iron. I'm going to share that with him. When we take the words of Jesus, the prayers of Jesus, in these psalms upon our lips, they're nuclear weapons. It's as it were lifting up that rod of iron and smashing these persecuting nations with that rod of iron. The church has got to learn how to use these nuclear psalms. In verse 8, David, now looking at life from God's vantage point, and is really seeing it from the fortress of heaven. He's caught up into the heavenlies. He realizes, I can have total confidence in God because I know the nature and the character of God. So he says, You, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. Now those nations, they think they can cast off the cords of Christ. Psalm 2 talks about that. But he who sits in the heavens shall laugh, he shall hold them in derision. And that's the kind of laughter that he's talking about here. Their attempts to exterminate the church are as futile as a fly trying to kill a man. Well, I guess a titsy fly could with uh, disease. But uh, you get the point. It, it's laughable that these little flies could be shaking their fist up at God. And confident that God is motivating is motivated by his emotions to laugh and to be in derision. He goes on to say in verses 9 through 10, I will wait for you, O you his strength, for God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Okay, when the bride cries out, she can have a confidence that her husband is going to come with his guns blazing. Okay, having asked in faith, there is no question whatsoever in David's mind, his, her, his husband, okay, the bride's husband will defend her. You know, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
And we could say, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and He will deliver us from your hand, O King. See, the Christian has the best of both worlds. If he gets killed, he's delivered from the persecution. All of the pain and the suffering that's down here, he's embraced by Jesus immediately in heaven. Death is a wonderful deliverance from persecution and toil and pain. On the other hand, if it's God's will for him to stay here, God can miraculously, in a very physical way, deliver from his enemies as well. And God has done this over and over in history. Either way, God is the victor and the Christian is more than conqueror through Christ who loved him. Whether in death, whether in suffering, whether in deliverance, God delivers. Now, God is more than just a defense. He's also on the offense. And I want you to notice the interesting wording in verses 11 through 12. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. Now, David over and over again spared Saul's life when he had the opportunity to kill Saul. It's just a rem- In fact, he shows such love uh, to, to Saul. His ultimate desire was that Saul be converted, not that he be dead. But he prays that this enemy would be taken out. It's two different ways he could be taken out. I think his heart's desire was that Saul be converted. And uh, again, these imprecatory psalms can be fulfilled in either way. And so David prays, do not slay them. Now that shows a remarkable love and forbearance. Do not slay them. In later uh, war psalms, David expresses the incredible love and kindness that he had shown uh, toward his enemies. He wanted them saved. Now, wouldn't it be a marvelous thing if the enemies right here in America would get converted overnight, would embrace the Reformed faith, would begin advancing God's kingdom instead of advancing death and humanism? I think it would be a wonderful thing. I would love it if God answered that way. But either way, David prays that the kingdom and the power of Satan would be absolutely torn down, not just in word, but in power. Scatter them by your power. Bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the word of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride and for the cursing and lying which they speak. There is plenty of room for God to destroy the, you know, the governors of... Sudan, you know, al-Bashir's regime uh, over there as they propagate their pack of lies to cover up their crucifixions of Christians, their murders of Christians, slavery, forced sex uh, trade. And uh, God can indeed uncover those lies. In Zimbabwe, it was pretty interesting. There was the Mugabe, the leader of that. I think it was in the the last uh, election Um, he was caught on videotape telling his people, uh, yeah, just beat up and kill opposition followers, but make sure you kill them and then blame it on the whites. Nobody will find out. And somebody asks about the police. Oh, yeah, we've got the police in our pocket. Nobody will find out. Well, they leaked that video out to the world. So the whole world knows what kind of a thug uh, Mugabe uh, really is. And God can uncover all of the pack of lies that we've seen out there. He's uncovered the lies of communists. He's uncovered the lies of this present administration. You know, they may think that last night they won this battle, you know, imposing the tyrannical health care bill. You know, if that bill is so good, why do they have to force people into it? Fine them, what is it, $250,000? I only heard it. I didn't read that. But if it's so good, why do they have to force people into this thing? But you know what? 
They may think that they've hoodwinked people, but God can completely turn aside, uncover uh, this uh, pack of lies that have come there. Isaiah 28, 17 says, The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the hiding place. When we're willing to cry out to God, when we as a church are being raped, He hears better than any earthly husband could, and He sees through the deceptions of the enemy. He sees their hiding places. He can take them out any time that He wants to take them out. Now, He repeats His confidence that God is motivated to war for us in verse 13. Consume them in your wrath. Consume them that they may not be, and let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Now, it may seem like a contradiction that they may not be. He's not praying that they die here necessarily. I mean, God can do that if He wants, but He wants it them taken out in a way where they themselves will know the glory of God that He's in charge, not them. He wants God to be lifted up. And that should be our desire. Revolution is not the answer to any society. It never has been the answer. By the way, our war for independence in America was not a revolution. It was lawful magistrates fighting. But there are so many people, they want to they engage in a revolution, guerrilla warfare. No, that's never been the answer. The ultimate solution is conversion and social transformation. Well, anyway, working backwards, he repeats that these enemies of the kingdom are like frustrated, howling dogs. And at evening, they return, they growl like a dog and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. It's my prayer that would be the state you know, the, the non-elect, frustrated at every turn in their efforts to advance humanism. You know, frustrated uh, that uh, they cannot intimidate the righteous. Frustrated that they cannot advance their darkness. In fact, the light is destined to penetrate all darkness and to scatter it. May it be, Lord Jesus. Now, throughout this middle section, David is expressing his confidence in God's power, God's ability, his motivation, his reasons for judgment. All through that section. And we have got to be convinced our God is a God of judgment, not just in eternity, but He's a God of judgment in history as well. So the question is not whether God judges. Of course He judges. The question is, are we willing to ask God to judge? Are we willing to arraign Him before the court of heaven? No court on earth can hear a case unless you bring the case to the court. Well, it's the same in the court of heaven. Okay, when the church has a husband who has vowed to defend her, how can we not sing these war psalms that he has given to us? It's like a whistle. When you blow this whistle, I'll be coming to you. And we say, well, we're not going to blow the whistle. It's too noisy. You know, it doesn't seem very kind, very nice. Forget it. Blow the whistle and the husband will come. Okay, now after reminding himself of what a wonderful defender he has in God, it's no wonder to me that David ends on a joyful note. He says in verse 16, but I will sing of your power. I will sing of your power. You know, we talk about the great equalizer. <laughs> and uh, I love the great equalizer. Men and women can, can use it. But, you know, Jesus has something far greater than any equalizer here on earth. And he is willing to wield that rod of iron when we, when we call for it. And so David here, he's not lamenting that God is somehow, you know, wringing his hands and just nervous that these nations aren't cooperating. No, not at all. And he doesn't even relegate the power to the future. See, yeah, God's powerful, but he can't do anything now. He's got to wait, you know, till the second coming. No. He says, but I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. Now, one reminder here is that it is a mercy that he comes to defend his church. We can never say God owes it to me. 
Okay? Uh, we deserve punishment. We deserve any persecution that we receive. But what we do is we focus not on what we deserve. We focus on the Lord Jesus, what He has purchased for us. And we say, united with Jesus, I can plead for mercy and He will give me mercy. It's through the merits of Jesus Christ that He gives it to us. But it is a mercy. We deserve the same thing these persecutors do. In fact, Scripture indicates, given the right circumstances, every one of us would be persecutors of the church. So it's not as if we're saying we're better than the persecutors. What we're saying is, Lord, destroy persecution. Either make them converted as Christians or take them out. But we want Your name, Your peace, Your kingdom extended and lifted up. He goes on, For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. You know, the ability to sing those kinds of praises when you are down and out and fleeing from the enemy is a sign of faith. It's a faith in God's sovereignty. It's a faith in God's power. It's a faith in His kindness and His love. It's a faith that He really is going to be a husband uh, to the church of Jesus Christ. And what a great place to end this sermon. Okay, when we sing the war psalms, we must sing them in faith that they portray a just and a perfect and a loving God. And many people, as I've mentioned, speak against the war psalms as if they show a harsh God. I revel in the war psalms. I delight in them because they are evidence to me of a divine husband that is raised to fury when he sees his wife abused and beaten and threatened with rape. What kind of a husband would passively sit by and watch and do nothing? I mean, that would not conform to God's standard of what a husband ought to look like. Okay, we're supposed to lay down our lives for our wives, and that's exactly what Jesus has done and is continuing to do. And Jesus is a far better husband than any of us will ever be. God will declare war on all who violate His wife, and we can rejoice that God is jealous for His wife. Now, as a side note, I should say that God's jealousy means that if we are complicit in our adultery and we don't repent, you know, we're a bride who commits adultery, wipes her mouth and says, I don't care, as the, Psalm, uh, as the Proverbs describes it. Well, yeah, God's fury is going to be raised up against the bride itself, right? That's what the jealousy of God is all about. But His jealousy also guarantees that He will defend His bride. In Exodus 34:14, He says, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God, whose name is Jealous. Anything God names Himself, that's at the very heart of who He is. Wow. If jealousy is of the very essence of who God is, that ought to give us confidence, something that we can rejoice in. It is part of His nature to rouse Himself to defend His bride when she is being abused. 